Well, good morning, church. Good morning, Holly Springs. Thank you for that. That was good. That was excellent. And uh, happy holiday. Today is the national day of celebration for many people. Do you know what it is? Opening day, more opening weekend, right? And so I'm so glad they, this is family celebration day, so I have some people to preach to. Glad you're here today. Um, today we're continuing our series on coming back, making a comeback. We've already come back or talked about coming back from down and out. The woman at the well represents what in many ways we should feel, a sense of separation that comes when we sin. But that our Savior seeks us out. We talk about being seekers. The true seeker is our Savior, is he not? He comes to us and finds us where we are and says, you think you're down, you think you're out, I have a new beginning for you. And then we talked about being, making a comeback from being freaked out. Wasn't last Sunday a blast? Halloween? Well, just can we give a praise to the Lord and a celebration for those who did all that? Oh, man, I had fun. Did you? I kept slipping candy out of, but I did it when nobody was watching. I certainly hope Net Leslie never saw me grab a few. I just kept sneaking and then into my pockets. It was a lot of fun. Did you enjoy Halloween? Halloween, that was fun. I don't know that I'll ever say it any other way now. Happy Halloween. So anyway, that was good. And so today we're talking about making a comeback from being burned out. I was looking at my desk, and I have two objects from my desk that I'll use today. And I thought to myself, if you have two objects that you're going to use from your desk, to teach about being burned out, you must be prone to be burned out. I think this is, this is the one that I just slip into, fall into, crash into. It's just going wide open with my hair on fire and then crashing into some form of despondency or depression. Not clinical depression for me. I'm just saying, except during the time that my father uh, died and after he died, I think I had some of it, but I'm just saying, I just tend to go wide open and then crash. And so I looked at some objects I had, and I have this object right here. Uh, I had an igniter somewhere. Did, did, we, did we lose the igniter? I think, I think uh, Clint stole it. Well, Clint's going to go find it so I can light it here in a minute. But let me talk to you about this lamp that stays on my desk. It stays on my desk for one reason. He didn't really steal it. I mean, I know there's some folks saying, well, Clint, really? No, I'm just kidding. We used it to light another lamp, and then we both broke this lamp because we're so coordinated. We're so good. But anyway, uh, so I have this not only because of what I'm talking about, but also because we live in a community, uh, a little neighborhood that has a lot of trees and a lot of squirrels, and trees and squirrels, squirrels don't go together when it comes to power lines. And so we're almost always lighting lamps, waiting the six hours or two days or whatever it takes for Encore. Thank you, Clint, my brother, to get there. But today, I want to tell you, it's because it serves as an object lesson for me about burnout. And I keep it there so that I'll remind myself of, of these components of what it takes to be a light, what, it, what components it, it takes to come together to, to show forth or to, to provide light for people. Um, not that I am the light of the world, that is Jesus, but I mean, we are reflecting his light. And so with, with that, I want to talk to you about the three components of, of this old lamp. I like the simplicity and beauty. I actually invented the oil lamp. Did you know that? No, just kidding. I really did not do that. 
I'm old, but kids, but not that old. But the simplicity of this technology is really cool. There's, first of all, there's a, a tank. There's a reservoir for oil. Kerosene lamps is what they used to be called. If you've ever burned kerosene, then you would give thanks and praise under God that they now have oil for lamps or lamp oil. It doesn't smell as bad, right? Right, folks that know what kerosene or whale, it was whale oil, it really is a blessing to your, to your home. But this is, this is oil, uh, lamp oil, and it's just a simple reservoir. It's, it's simple, but it's essential. There's a reservoir for oil or for fuel. And then after that, there is the wick system. There's the wick and the wick system. It's, it's just the most sophisticated part of the oil lamp. It's got uh, a, a wick. It's a fabric that's woven, and it, of course, goes and it extends down into and must extend down into the oil, and it saturates and soaks up and draws up uh, the oil to the surface. And the wick serves... Uh, the wick system serves to control the wick and the height of the wick and the height of the burn and also to keep the fire from going down into the reservoir, which would be a bad experience, right? So uh, the wick system itself. So we'll go ahead and light this lamp. See if it works. And it does. And you can see that I can, I can control the height. It's got a little torquing system that allows me to, to lower the light to raise the light, to really raise the light, and we'll talk about that. And then there's the globe. And the globe itself is very simple, but its, its job is to transmit, to, to communicate, to, to make sure that the light itself extends and broadcasts to the farthest reach. It's the conduit, if you will, of the light to the one who needs the light. So looking at it a little differently, there's a tank and it's fuel. And as we're going to look into a passage in 1 Kings, we're going to see that the, that, that the tank could stand and has stood in my life as what fuels me, what motivates me, the why of what I do. Why do I serve? What motivates me to serve? If I put the wrong fuel in this tank, it won't burn well or, or burn out quicker or just, just won't serve its purpose. I need to make sure I have the right why, the right motive. Why do I do what I do? And then there's the wick system, which is, is a sense like my thought life. It's got to be controlled. It's got to be uh, make sure that what's coming through me is in my mind, out to my ministry, out through my life. It has a certain sense of it could be out of control. It could burn way too high. You see, can you all all see that? If this sermon is too simple, please just tell me. I'm trying to, I want it to be simple. It's simple for me. This works for me. You see, as it the fire alarms will go off if I keep doing this, right? If that, and sometimes I burn just like that because of the thoughts, because of what the how is. If the tank is the why, the wick system is the how. How I do things matters. The, vo the velocity of my life, the, the pace of my life, am I able to, to trim my wick back a little bit? And then there is the globe itself which I'm going to contend and has for me stood for the who. It seems maybe confusing to you, but it works for me, so hopefully I can communicate it to you through the life or one moment in the life of Elijah. Because as the light shines, I see. And as I see, I see God, I see you. I see God, I see you. So there's motivation. Why do I do what I do? What's the motivation for what I do? 
there is thought or there's a mechanism. There, there must be a pace. There must be an understanding of what I'm doing. And so it is the how I do what I do. But it ultimately becomes about who God is. And also, I'm going to argue as long as God has me is your I pastor. You know, iPhone, iPad, iPod. I'm your I pastor. So not that I'm intelligent or internet or whatever that stands for. It's just I'm interim pastor, right? As long as I'm your interim pastor, I'm going to contend that we, God has given us, us. Can I say that again? God has given us, us. And so in, when I'm in a moment of burnout and I see this lamp at my desk, I'm reminded to ask myself, why are you doing what you're doing? What's the fuel for what you're doing? Are you getting fueled up? I'm reminded to look and say, how are you thinking and, and, and how are you doing ministry? Make sure that it's done the way God says at the rate and pace God says. And he also says, you're not alone. And that's what the light does. It, uh, you know, if it's, if it's working properly, I'll be able to see my wife. I'll be able to see my family. I'll be able to see my church. So let's look at it. By the way, Next Sunday, the staff, the deacons, and maybe some of the elders, they may be referees. We're challenging the world, that is you, to a kickball game. As you look at me, do not be afraid. I know that as you're looking at me, you're going, he probably could beat us by himself. The mighty, powerful kickball man that I am. Why are y'all laughing? But I also have a staff of Ryan and Anna and Leslie, and we're going to conscript some youth in. Does that sound like cheating? <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get youth in, and, and I may coach. I want to show you my coaching skills. If I coach this, good job. That's about it. That's all I know. But anyway, I, I think we have Kyle. I think Kyle Ivy may be the coach for the other team, and there's sign-ups out there. We want you to sign up. Because we are taking you on next Sunday. Isn't that right? There's Leslie. Isn't that right? We're taking them on. I think they're afraid of us, Leslie. I do. I do. I think we may conscript Clint in because of his amazing ability to, 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 to play kickball. He's just a kickball dynamo. So we'll get some people, but we'll have a team that will supplement our many weaknesses and tear you all apart. Sign up afterwards, would you? Reminds me of a Little League game they were playing, and so a little boy sitting on the bench, and it was 18-0. The dad walked up to his son on the bench and said, you don't look discouraged, son. It's 18-0. Why are you not discouraged? He said, why should I be discouraged? I'm not discouraged. We haven't even come up to bat yet. And that's a good attitude right there. That's... I mean, we had not come up to bat. Sounds like my Baylor Bears yesterday or Texas Aggies. This just was a scary day yesterday. But, man, when you start seeing yourself burned out or down and out, how do you deal with it? How do you come back from that? Can we look at the life of Elijah? Let's look at the life of Elijah today. And, and would you turn with me to 1 Kings, please, chapter 19. 1 Kings Chapter 19, all right? As we look at that, I'm going to talk to you every now and then about what it feels like to be a pastor. I feel like I pretty sure should have talked to you a little bit about pastor inside stuff as you're praying for your next pastor. But uh, 
this opening day of deer season, I'll tell you what one of my friends said. He said, you know what it feels like to be a, a pastor? I said, what? He said, it, it, all you have to do to know what it feels like to be a pastor is to put on deer skin and an antler and go crawling on all fours out in the woods on opening day. I said, that works for me. I got that. I got it. So, you, you know, it, it, is a, it is a situation where you could slip into a sense of burnout or discouragement. I remember one man was saying, I'm not going to church today. He's in bed. He wouldn't get out of bed. His wife says, you need to go to church. He said, they don't like me up there. They're always talking bad about me. They, they, they don't respect me. I mean, I know when I'm there, I'm not among people that support me. And she said, but you need to go to church. She said, give me one reason I should go to church. She said, I'll, she said, I'll give you two. Number one, you ought to go to church. And number two, you're the pastor. <laughs> it's an old joke. We've all heard it, I know. But it, it, whoever you call into this sacred desk, as they call it, to this place to speak to you, I can assure you, more than likely, it's someone that can slip into feeling burned out. So I know I do. So you can pray for one. And then when he comes, you can be the one that helps fuel him, helps him to think through and have the right wick system, and then he'd be part of his light system that communicates and helps illumine the truth. But, the, but we see if there is someone in the Old Testament that I admire for his bravado, for his courage, it is Elijah. Now verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. What had Elijah done? This falls on the heel of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. So, God had told Elijah to pray and that there would be a drought. So there was a three-year drought. Now, in the background is a woman that, that is named Jezebel. She worships Baal, the Baals. She worships false gods. We might wonder how someone in a country called Israel that was one of the 12 tribes, the original 12 tribes, of the nation or the people group of Israel, one of the key ones, how, they, how it could become so diluted that the queen openly worships a false god. We might wonder that. And yet, it probably shows that we need to look a little deeper and find out that the Baal worship was built upon expediency or practicalities. Bales, the bales would, would deliver crops. He would de deliver rain. He would deliver moisture. He would deliver fire. He was the god of, they were the gods of elements. And so if you were a farmer and this was an agricultural community, it would be really easy to vote in the election for the queen who would deliver you the goods, the agricultural goods. So that's how she got to be supported, not just because she was married to Ahab, but because she brought the gods that could deliver the goods. And we're like that, aren't we, this week? Aren't you kind of voting for the one who delivers you the goods? I mean, it's, it's, it's in our nature to do that. It's natural to do that, to vote according to whoever gets us the best deal. And I voted this week early, and, and I couldn't help but think that I think like that at times. So here she is brought or bringing absolute paganism to the nation. And so at Mount Carmel, you know the story, but quickly, uh, God told Elijah to go to Ahab and, and have this showdown, this tombstone event, this okay corral moment where 
uh, for almost eight or nine, almost 12 hours, the priests of Baal, 450 of them, pray to Baal and ask him to bring down fire on an offering that they built. They built their own offering with a bull and then with fire, and they prayed. And at midday, by the way, this bold prophet who could have lost his life for doing so catches them at the noon hour, the hottest hour, and says, Hey, hey, maybe your God's asleep. Shout louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Shout louder. And so they do, and they cut themselves, lacerate themselves, they abuse themselves, and shout louder and louder. Nothing happens. So in the evening, it's his turn. And you know the story. He, he, um, he builds his fire, and he puts the bull on it, and then he digs a trench around it, which apparently they didn't do. And he put the trench on it. He put not one, but not two, but three times he poured gallons and gallons of water until it filled the trench around it. So it's wet wood. It's wet bull. It's wet everything. It's, it's just wet. And then he prays and fire falls. And here's how the story ends. The people of God are shouting, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. Elijah's God is God. I'll tell you, if next Sunday, everyone who regularly attends this church came to church, and then at the end, due to nothing that Ryan and I did, or any other people on the platform, just everyone rose up and started shouting, the Lord, he is God. That would be one of the high points of my life. If y'all want to plan something, why don't y'all plan that? <laughs> right, Ryan? That would be awesome. We would be right with you. This is a high water mountain peak moment for Elijah. And guess what follows on it? Well, you know, let's read along. Elijah done and he had a killed all the prophets with the sword because that's how the story ends as he commands that these prophets of Baal be, be killed. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. You're a wanted man and all of my energy, all of my network, everything about me is coming against you and you will die. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Would you not agree that is the picture of someone burned out? He needs a comeback. It's a portrait of it, and we could have gone to different passages, but I just want us to look at the life of Elijah because I think we can see ourselves in that moment. Maybe we don't see ourselves in the Carmel moment, but we see ourselves in this moment. Wanting to quit. Discouraged. I, I just imagine in my mind that I see that prophet under the broom tree, ready to quit. Done, put a fork in me, he's done. But I keep in mind that he has just seen his prayers answered and fire fall from heaven. He has seen God use him in ways that are beyond, really, almost my imagination. And yet I know as I retrace my life, I remember that after mountain peak experiences have come this discouragement what are we going to do now how do we respond to that coming back from retreat 
What do we do now that we're back in the valley? How do we deal with what plagues us or frightens us or intimidates us? So here he is, and many of you know what that's like. What do you do? How do you deal with that? Did you know the Bible says that these men and women were given to us for this very reason? Listen, please, to Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4. Just follow along with me, please. You don't have to go there, but just listen. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Isn't that good? Romans says, you know why Elijah, his life was given to you? One of the reasons is so that when you look into his life, you get encouragement and hope. Remember what I said last week about we look in... Hebrews 11, and we see the roll call of these men and women of faith, and we think that they're all like fairy tale figures that never had a problem. This is Elijah saying, take my life. Lays down and goes to sleep, hoping that he wakes up in heaven. So I believe that there is something like that in each one of us. We know what that feels like, to be pulled down towards burnout. What do you do with that? How do you make a comeback from that? Let's talk about it. There is a reality here that we must face. If you're not in it, you could be in it at some point in time. Discouragement and depression. Even committed followers of God sometimes will find themselves discouraged. How do we cope with that? The scripture says these men were given to us. So what is Elijah going through? What frustration is he dealing with? Why, why is he like that? Why are we like that? And are we like that? Well, studies indicate that we are. 17.6 million Americans deal with some kind of depression. One out of five Americans deal with depression in their lifetime. One out of five. The rate of clinical depression among females is twice that of males. And you know why, don't you? They're married to men. I mean, you don't really want Just kidding. So if you're a female, your likelihood of dealing with depression is twice that of a man. Untreated depression is the number one cause of suicide in our nation. And depression is the leading cause of alcoholism, drug addiction, and other addictions. Because we reach out for something that can make the pain go away. But there's something better. And Elijah encountered it. There's someone better, I should say. So, know that you can be fatigued. You can be physically fatigued. You can be emotionally or relationally fatigued. And you can be spiritually fatigued. And he was all of those things. He was physically fatigued. Because go back to our passage and we'll keep reading. We'll see that the Lord deals with it right away. Look at verse 5 again. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. At once an angel touched him and said... Get up and eat. This is the first recorded instance of anybody ever eating angel food cake. Bad joke. I don't have any good jokes. You like? I love angel food cake, so it's a good joke for me. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread and baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. This is the reality of being physically exhausted, of, of not eating well, of not taking care of your body. And so 
There is no question that the scripture calls us to be good stewards of the temple God gave us. That you can become physically worn out from lack of sleep, not eating well, running too far and too fast in your life. So here's a challenge to you. Make sure that you watch your physical well-being because you don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a price. And that means your body does not belong to you. Your body has been bought with a price, and you owe it to God and to his family to take good care of your body, to make sure you see your doctor, you get those checkups, that you do exercise, that you don't neglect your own physical needs for the glory of God and for the servants of the saints. So there's physical exhaustion here, and we can obviously see that. He's burning the candle at two ends. One guy went to see his doctor, and he said, the doctor said, you're burning the candle at two ends. And the guy said to his doctor, listen, I didn't come here for a lecture. I came here for more wax. I have a friend. He said for years, I'm going to burn out, not rust out. And I would laugh when he would say that. And he died on me Easter before last. And I'm not happy with him. There's hardly a week goes by that I wouldn't say, couldn't you just rust just a little? He literally expended his life and died at 58 years of age. I'm just saying, had he taken a little better care of himself, he could be serving the Lord today. I'm not judging him. He's with God, and I love him and miss him, and I can't, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. But I'm just asking you, are you being a good steward of your life? I'll never forget talking to one of my, my, my mentors, uh, and I went to a, a church that was three times the size of the previous church, and it began to wear me out. So we're eating Tony Romo's ribs in, in Arlington. Did that make you hungry? I hope it did. I just try to abuse my audience as much as possible. So he's smacking on ribs, and I'm telling my life, he said, Scott, how are you doing with your margins? I said, what margins? And he took a napkin, and he drew a margins, and he, I said, how, how big is your margin around your life? And I said, what do you mean? He said, it looks like a, you look like a guy that keeps a, the page full. And he started marking up the page of the napkin, and he said, what do you have a half inch margin I said probably not I feel each day all the way full he looked at me he said I want to ask you would you accept the call to the finish line I said I've never heard about that I told him then about my calling into ministry December 2nd 1984 he said no 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 he interrupted he said I, I didn't call I didn't ask you that he said have you accepted the call to the finish line he said you're going to burn out he said, I think you're intending to burn out. I'd look at my life and say, do I have the right margins? Am I taking care of myself physically? Do I have my, the end in mind? Do I keep my goals, synapse firing on the end? Do I know that I've got to pace myself to do that? So you can burn out. You, you can burn out because of physical exhaustion. You can burn out because of relational exhaustion. Would you notice in verse 10 and verse 14, we'll cover this a little more in a minute, but he tells God that he's the only one faithful. Join me with, the, with that. Look at 10 and 14 and see that not once but twice he says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death. He says to God with a sword, I'm the only one left. It's all me. There's a ratio. One out of one of your servants are standing here today. I think he's sincere. I, don't, I just think he really thinks he's the only one left. And then look at verse 14. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put the prophets to death, the sword, and I am the only one left. You can become relationally separated. 
the year or 13 months. It takes about 13 months, I think, for the first stage of grief. 13 months after my dad died, this extrovert who likes people, you know, people that are more introverts, when they go home at night, they want to really be alone. My wife, she, she charges her batteries alone. You know, what I, you know how I charge my batteries? Let's have a neighborhood barbecue. I'm kind of that way, man. There's a party and I'm in it, you know. 13 months after I died, I didn't want to be with people. I just wanted to be alone. People had to pull me out of that. Relationally, I thought, I'm the only one. I'm all alone. You can become relationally burned out or separated. You have to be careful. On 14 different occasions, Jesus went alone to recharge because of this relational separation problem. But you can become spiritually drained too. Spiritually drained. I want to take us back through the, the tank and we'll be done. I want to take us through the oil lamp, I should say, the tank, the wick system, and the globe. But I want us to take it through the, how this resolves itself. You could actually read this passage with the question of what's motivating him, what's driving him, what's keeping him from having a full reservoir. Why is he doing his ministry now? What is the compelling, propelling? You could read the whole thing and just write on a piece of paper. Why is he motivated? What has happened to his motivation? Then you could read through and read it again and say, and how is he thinking? What are his thoughts like? And how does God deal with his thoughts? We've just seen his primary thought. I'm the only one, and they're out to kill me. I'm all alone. What do you expect, God? And you could read through it and say, who are the people in his life? Really, is he right when he says, I'm all alone? Because as we deal with moving through those three things, using our lamp as an illustration, we may be refreshed and corrected ourselves. So let's get God's direction for regaining hope in this mist. Uh, an unknown author wrote a poem that I like. It says, when things go wrong, as sometimes they will, when the road you're walking seems all uphill, when your funds are low and your debts are high, when you try to smile but have to cry, when your cares are pressing you down a bit, you rest if you must, but don't quit. So we, we want to quit, but we need to move on. How do we do it? Number one, fill the tank. Would you look at verse 7 and 8, 7 and 8, and fill the tank? Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights. At first blush, it just looks like he's saying, get something to eat, get a good, good night's sleep. I think there's more to it than that. There's the phrase I want you to say with me, too much for you. But I want you to say it this way. I want you to repeat for me. Too much for me. Together, say it with me. Too much for me. Would you do it again? Too much for me. Oh, uh, self-made men and women, Baptists, I mean, churchgoers, conquerors, leaders all. We need to come to grips with what God is saying here. It is too much for you. What drives you? What motivates you? What do you put in your tank? If it is, I can do all things, period. It is the wrong fuel to put in your tank. So when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm thinking, you know, I'm feeling like quitting, I look and I say, what am I putting in here? What, what is the fuel? What motivates me to do it? Is it duty? Do I do the work I do because of duty? Or is it obligation? Or is it because I want to impress people? Or is it because I just like it? Or is it because I just think that maybe God would somehow be pleased with me if I worked harder towards him and maybe reached towards him through my own efforts? That is Bad, bad fuel for your oil lamp for your life. That is not good motivation for your life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? 
What is a better motivation is for me to realize what I see in this passage. And it's in the life of Elijah. If we went back a chapter or some, some verses, we would see that when the drought begins in Elijah's life, you know what he does? He says, go to Zarephath and you will see a widow. He shows up at the widow's at the edge of town and there's the widow. And he says, cook me a meal. And she says, I have enough for one meal. Me and my son... We were going to take some sticks, and I'm collecting sticks right now, and we're going to take some oil, and we're going to take some flour, and I was going to make our last meal. The Lord spoke to Elijah and said to tell her to go back and cook. As long as she cooked, she would have enough oil and enough flour. Remember that story? Isn't that a great story? Is that not a picture of grace? Is that not what God is trying to say to you today? You can either say, I can do it, I have the strength, I have the intelligence, I have the charm, I have the charisma, I can do it. Or you can say, it's too much for me. But God, it's not too much for you. And that's a kind of fuel that really gets me up in the morning and keeps me going. It is not me and my works, it is God and His grace overflowing in me that comes out if anything comes out at all to you. It is not me. Because you know what, standing up here and teaching 1 Kings 19 is too much for me. But it's not too much for God. Using me as his lamp. Using you as his lamp. Hey, you know that that phrase in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. You You know, I love that little phrase. But did you know for years scholars didn't know what the word daily meant? They couldn't find an understanding. It wasn't used elsewhere. They couldn't figure out what it was used for. But they were trying to figure out what it meant. The word is expiousios. I know you wanted to write that down. I know you're impressed with my vast knowledge of Greek, and I'm just kidding. But this is worth you thinking about. So scholars were looking around, and they found in an archaeological dig, they found a little note. Guess what it was? It was a woman's shopping list. And there was the word expiousios. And under it, she had listed her perishables. She was going down to the market, down to the bazaar, walking down to the market. She had her list. Aren't you glad that, and it could have been a man, because I can't go to the grocery store without a list. Amen? I mean, if it's more than three things, I'm lost. But here's this person going down to the grocery store, and it says, Expiusios, and what does he or she need to pick up? Enough for the day. Can I ask you a question? When it comes to food, how many of you have enough for the day? Would you raise your hand? Do you have enough for the day? If you've got more than enough for today, guess what? You've got more than God promised. That's grace. How many of you, it's also promised, this is about all that we're promised, is what we get, we get enough food for the day. And you know what else we get? Enough clothing. How many of you have more than one outfit to wear? All right. Some of you don't. Some of you only have one outfit. Here God comes to Elijah and says, I've always fed you, and I'm going to feed you now. That's grace. That's grace. Boy, I can put grace in this tank, can't you? God's abundant, overabounding, more than I deserve. I deserve hell. I deserve separation from God. I deserve justice leading to punishment 
our damnation. But you know what I get instead? The person of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sins and the Holy Spirit filling me and saving me. By the way, do you, do you have that experience in life? Have you ever come to the place where it says, it's too much for me, I cannot get to heaven. But you realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to pay for your sins to purchase a place for you in heaven. And you say, I receive that. I accept that gift. If you haven't done that, you can do that today. If your light is burning at all, you're a child of God, that is. That's the only fuel that God uses. Grace. Are you, using, are you drawing upon that? Driving here today, I was driving and I drove through some of the most beautiful parts of Texas. Somewhere between Pal- Palestine and, and uh, Holly Springs. I was driving through a part where the trees are growing over and the sun was coming through. And I went, I do not deserve this moment. That's the kind of fuel that can keep you going, right? Or you could say, I'm late, I'm going to be in trouble. That's not the kind of fuel that keeps you going. What do you see in life? What fuels you? I think the oil of our life should be God's abundant grace for giving and filling. Amen? Oh, I do, I do. I honestly believe that's what we're seeing here. Why are you serving? The next thing I want you to see, please, is in verse 13. Verse 13. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. After the wind, there's an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, well, God, God, you're, if you're not in the earthquake, you've got to be in the fire, right? In the Old Testament, well, he was always in the earthquake. If he wasn't in the earthquake, he was in the fire, right? So this thing goes counterintuitive, and that's why I point you back to the WIC system. We're moving along. Stay with me. The WIC system, I look at that when I see it on my desk. It's sitting there. I go, that's a reminder to me that my thoughts matter, and that I must keep, take my thoughts captive. And I can, I can kind of be out of balance, and I can burn too high. I can burn too low. I've got to find that right spot where my WIC burns right, and those thoughts are the thoughts of God, and it produces the most light possible. And I'm telling you, he counterintuits all over Elijah by saying, there's going to be an earthquake, and you're going to think that's me. And then there's going to be a fire, and you're going to say, that's me. And that's not what you're going to experience. What does it say happened? That the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a... Did I just say fire? That's beautiful. I'm in East Texas. I love that, man. After the fire came a gentle whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? Doesn't the Bible say his ways are not our ways? Wouldn't it just make sense to really, really make this lamp work if you could turn it up just a little more and a little more and a little more? Well, even more and even more. Well, this is better. Well, this is better. Well, look, now I've got it really going. And yet God says... Sometimes you need to trim your wick back. You need to turn it down a little bit that less is more to make it to the finish line. And I'm teaching you, Elijah, that your thinking is not right. And I want you to hear that I'm not in the earthquake. I'm not in the fire. I'm in this still small voice. But you would think that really the encounter with God was the who. But I really don't think so. I think the encounter with God is when God speaks to us and says, how you're doing it is not right. God is in the how. Some people don't like to think that God is in the how. God is too high and holy and lofty to be in how we do things. Uh, People that think that like that, they often do things saying that the ends justify the means. I believe God is in the means. 
God is in the methods. God is in how we do things. Amen? You hear what? Some of you are not amening, but I'm telling you, I'd like for you to think about it. How we trim our wick, how we work through and think through what we do is important. How I think and how God teaches me to think is critical in who I am, who God, what God says to me and how, who he becomes to me, and then who I am to you. How are you trimming your wick? How are your thoughts? How do you do ministry? Let's look and move to the last thing, the globe itself. You look at verse 10. Two times I told you, he says, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. When I see the globe on my desk, and I see this passage, I see that I was not set apart for me to be by myself. I was set apart to be a part of God's family and for the lost. I'm here for others. I am a servant leader, and when I begin thinking about me and being alone, the only one, I know that, that I need to trim my wick, fill my tank with the right fuel, trim my wick, and then begin to focus my life on you. It is actually the solution to my problems is to see beyond myself. Would you see what he says? Anoint, look, look down, he says, anoint Haziel king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. I reserve how many thousands? He said the ratio is I'm one out of one. As you read in the passage, how many thousands did God say he had? Can you see it? How many? 7,000. He said, you think you're alone. You think it's all you. You think there's nobody else. But I'm here to tell you there are 7,000 others waiting for you to go down there and disciple them, to teach them and lead again, and to be that globe of light and life that I've set you apart to be. But as long as your tank is empty or your wick is too high, and if you notice something, I was hoping this would happen. When our wick isn't trimmed right, have you noticed what happens to the globe? Can you see what's happening to my globe? It needs to be cleaned. God does some cleaning of Elijah and does some work in him to say, you've got this thing all messed up, but I'm going to clean you again and I'm going to send you down there. But this one reality must be clear to you. You are not your own. You belong to the 7,000 down there. Now go down and talk to Jehu. Remember Jehu driving like a madman through Jerusalem becomes a powerful high-speed motor uh, car racer for God. And he says, go down there and get Jehu. Sit him out. Go get these others and send them out. Find the 7,000 and, and, and let them minister to you and you minister to them and, and be part of God's family. And I'm here to tell you, God has given us each other and we don't have to go it alone. You don't have to go it alone. Are you trying to go it alone? Let God get you out of the cave you're in, the dark spot you're in. Listen to him. Learn from him. Help him to think through your motivations, helping to think through your thought life so that you once again can be a light unto this dark and lonely world. Well, the other thing on my desk. Do you know what I mean when I say dot matrix? It's not a dot matrix printer, but it's printed by dot matrix. It's so old, it goes back to dot matrix printers. I have a dot matrix printed poem on my desk. Wherever I move, wherever I go, I find that dot matrix poem and I put it on my desk. 
The background for it is Jeff, Dr. Jeff Ray was a seminary professor at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth where I got a master's degree and a doctor degree by the grace of God. And so I, I heard about this story and I went digging around to find the poem. The background is Dr. Ray, who was a preaching professor of yesteryear, his son was gifted and talented and had a grasp of scripture and was no doubt going to be a leader that we would all know about. And he was found, his body was found on the back streets of Fort Worth and they didn't know why. He had to go, Dr. Ray had to go and identify his son's body. It was a terrible moment for Dr. Ray. He couldn't move. He couldn't teach. He had to be carried to the funeral and then carried back. Mrs. Elliot was the librarian of the day and at that, during that day, and she found a poem, and she gave it to Dr. Ray. Dr. Ray read the poem, returned to his classroom, and returned to the pulpit. I had to know the poem, and I found it, and I've kept it with me, and I read it whenever I feel burned out. Would you listen to it? I want to go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. There are battles to fight by day and by night for God and the right, and I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. I'm sick, tis true, worried and blue and worn through and through, but I won't let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. I will never yield. What? Lie down in the field and surrender my shield? No, I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. May this be my song mid legions of wrong. Oh, God, make me strong that I may never let go. I know you may want to let go. If not now, at some time. Oh, God, make you strong. Filled with the power and the reservoir of the strength of His grace, overflowing through a system of thought that is God's way of thinking, illuminating your life and mine. Elijah, he didn't let go. You won't either. Dear loving Father, Sometimes we run smack into, ye, into life and it hurts. And sometimes we don't know how to take the next step. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Uh, but God, you always come shining through. And thank you that Romans says, you've given us the life of Elijah that we might have hope. When we see it, we do gain hope. Father, I pray that for each one of us, we'll examine today our motives Father, if we're empty, fill us with the grace of God. Father, help us to think through how we think through things. Help us to pace ourselves. And how we do things matters to you. Even, even small things we do, you see them and they must glorify you. Not only on this side of the pulpit, but the other side. Not only when we're teaching class, but when we're at home with our kids. Not only uh, when we're at church, but we're at our jobs, supervising or being supervised. Father, make us a light unto this dark world. Some of us need to clean our globes today. We need to get some things right. We need to make our way forward and pray and, and ask you to clean that sin and filth out of our lives. Others need to simply rejoice and praise you that we have a light and we can be a light. But Lord, 
for those of us who tend down the road of being burned out, help us to take what we've learned today and to apply it to our lives. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, this has never been real to them. They hear the word grace, but they don't know grace personally in a real way. I pray that they would know your son Jesus, his forgiveness. They would come forward today to confess that they are sinners and to call upon your name and therefore be saved. We love you. We love you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just stand and sing and come. If you want to indeed come and pray, the altar's open. You want to take my hand or a friend's hand and say, this is what I need prayer for. We're here to pray with you. As we stand together and sing together, let's come together.